Well, we are in the midst of a series that we've been looking at some difficult questions about Christianity, about the faith. And I hope, my hope in doing this, this is a study of apologetics, a um, kind of a defense for the gospel, defense for Christianity, and I hope that they've been beneficial. I know I've appreciated the opportunity to dive a bit deeper, to try to unpack some of these challenges to the faith. We want this church to be a place where we can ask, we can wrestle with genuine questions. I believe that that act of struggle helps to bring a tenacity to our faith. I compare it often to exercising, right? When, when you exercise, when you challenge yourself, it strengthens your muscles, makes your cardiovascular system a bit more efficient. You're just plain healthier. Think similarly when we stretch ourselves in pursuing some difficult questions of the faith, not just living in, on easy street, we're able to be healthier in our faith. We're able to be more steadfast in the ways in which we pursue God. And we're not going to always get nicely packaged, cookie-cutter type answers, but we're able to trust in the goodness of God in the midst of what might even bring up a little bit of a certainty. The Christian tradition early on was filled with mystery. We don't know how Jesus is fully God and fully man, but we know that it, he is, or that that's, that's that union. We may not have scientific or precise language, but we hold faith and trust that God knows what he's doing. So this morning, we're going to be looking at another one of these questions that's often uh, pro- provided, aimed at Christians by proponents of the new atheism, and it's this, doesn't religion hinder morality? That's the question that is often put that we're answering. Take this quote from Steven Weinberg. He's a Nobel Prize winner in the uh, field of theoretical physics. physics. So he is a pretty smart dude, and he says this, quote, Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Now, what he's saying is people are going to act how they're wired, but that religion proportionately causes people that, you know, society would normally consider as good people to do horrendous things in the name of their religion. Let's think about his quote for a minute. Is his statement true? I mean, I'd say both yes and no. I mean, it probably wouldn't take much mental energy for us to think of places where religion has caused significant suffering, harm, evil in the world. And it was religion that caused terrorists to hijack some American planes and fly them into heavily populated buildings in New York City and Washington, D.C. Religion continues to be at the forefront of our political discourse between the pro-life and pro-choice movements, each claiming the high, higher moral ground. Michael shared two weeks ago that there didn't seem to be a disconnect for many Christians in the South following the Civil War to go to church on Sunday morning and then join a public lynching later in the afternoon. We can easily provide examples that give fodder to support Weinberg's statement. But when we started this series, we addressed the question, aren't we better off without religion, three weeks ago? And in that, we saw that there are countless examples of the opposite, places where the Christian faith has provided a positive moral conscience to society. Now, 
I don't want to deny all of the horrendous things that have been done in the name of faith, right? We must acknowledge with sorrow and repentance the spaces where Christianity and morality have been at odds. But in doing so, we don't discount the places, the many, many places where they have been in alignment. And so my hope is by the time that we're done, at the end of our time together, that we can see how the Christian worldview provides a positive morality for the world. So let's go back to that initial question. Doesn't religion hinder morality? Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote the book Confronting Christianity that we're getting these questions out of, she highlights that there are three fundamental problems with that question. First is the problem of specificity. The statement is too broad because religion itself is very broad. I mean, think about how religion motivates people. Take ISIS, motivated by religion on one side, and the Amish on the other. Religion causes them to live very different lifestyles. The outworking of morality is very different. Or take the example of William Carey. William Carey was a Christian missionary to India in the, I think, 19th century. He's often considered the father of modern missions, perspective where missionary activity, finally, they, they kind of a light bulb went off and they're like, Mission, missions should be sharing the gospel, not just Western culture. Prior to that, there was some problems, problems with that. But anyway, he, you know, one of his primary accomplishments was ending the practice of sati in Hindu India. Now, sati was the practice where a widow would throw herself on the funeral pyre of her deceased husband, and she would be burned alive. Now, the purpose of this ceremony was believed to wash away the sins of the spouse and his family. Now, as you can imagine, this probably wasn't done voluntarily too often. It was often coerced, and it became an avenue, another avenue for the oppression of women in that nation of India. And so sati was considered a Hindu sacred tradition. It was an outworking of their religion. So here you have William Carey with his Christian conviction saying that the practice of sati is wrong, and in the other corner you have the Hindu faith which celebrated the practice. Both of these religions advocated that the practice was either moral or immoral. So comparing these two religions as both hindering morality is not specific enough. And not to mention that now there's the problem of who gets to determine morality, uh, but that's, that's the third issue, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll get there. Saying that religion hinders morality is too broad. It's like saying philosophy hinders morality. Surely there are some philosophies that are terrible and have led to atrocities against humanity, but you can't dismiss all philosophy because certain flavors are flawed. Now, the second problem with the question itself, or the presupposition, I mean, it's a question, but it's an assumption that's being made, is that the data doesn't fit the assumptions. This is similar to that first question a month, uh, three weeks ago, almost a month ago, at the beginning of the month, that aren't we better off without religion? It, it, it's a great soundbite, but it just doesn't fit the trend lines. You know, as I mentioned before, you can always find examples where the statement is true, but in the words of Christian Miller, there are, quote, literally hundreds of studies that link religious participation with better moral outcomes. 
Many of these studies have shown that religious participation, I mean, frankly, this is complex because we know in, in Christianity that just like going to church, like that's kind of a form of religion, is not necessarily the same thing as being a Christian. We're not Christians just because we go to church. There's a whole lot more about, you know, understanding and accepting Christ's forgiveness and all that in with that. Um, but these studies point that even just the behaviors of attending religious services link to lower rates of crime. Right? Data seems to point to that, confirm that being a religious person makes us happier, healthier, and more moral. So the third issue with the question, I'm going to circle back to it, who gets to define morality? Put another way, who gets to be the decision maker that something is right or wrong? And this is a volatile issue, but I, want to, I think it's important for us in the church to engage with it. Consider this issue in our culture on abortion. I just read a headline, NPR, that this is the championing threat of, I mean, it's been the championing threat of, of Republicans for the last 40 years, right? Pro-life, Roe v. Wade. It's now becoming the cry of the De- Democratic Party for 2024. The pro-life and the pro-choice movements both claim the moral, moral high ground in our culture. The pro-life movement sees itself as the champion of the unborn, being an advocate for those who are unable to voice for themselves, for their own existence. The pro-choice movement, on the other hand, sees itself as a guardian of women's rights. They believe that women should have autonomy over their bodies and that the government doesn't belong in the decision-making room of those things. So who's right? Which position is, quote, the moral position and which one is, quote, the immoral? Who gets, I mean, I know the church has said for a long time, which is the moral position. I mean, the church has been consistently pro-life from its inception, as I shared about exposure. You know, well, I'll bring up exposure again here in a minute. But why do they get to make that decision? Who, you know, who, who is the basis for that in our society? Because the rhetoric of our culture wars and on this issue, and frankly for just about any other hot-button issue, is that we put one group of people into the category of saints, and we like to f- think of the other group of people as demonic. One side is right, the other is wrong. But who gets to be the arbiter of that decision of right and wrong, moral and immoral? If you're pro-choice, then you're going to group religions that are pro-life in the immoral camp. If that's the case, maybe that would lead this question to make sense. But this complexity isn't even always between religious and secular culture. I mean, we saw this with William Carey, the practice of sati. You have two different religious expressions, understanding morality differently. So I'm sure you can see that this question of morality and who gets to define it is a really difficult subject to pin down with any kind of precision. I think one of the the best ways that people have tried to create a universal understanding of this is to boil it down to just human rights or to state it in the negative, right? Not bringing harm to someone else. That's morality. And much of this discourse has been secularized. It's, it's attempted without involving any kind of religious language. But the logical conclusion of that kind of exercise is futile 
If you, if you rank the list of human rights violations in the world, globally, who do you think tops that list? It's North Korea tops the list. An atheist, secularized nation. The worldview that attempts to remove God from the picture does not do well at bringing actual flourishing to people's lives. Near the top, with a whole heck of a lot of, you know, they're on the watch list for human rights violations. Another atheist, secularized nation, China. The truth is that these universal human rights grew out of Christian thought. This mentality did not exist in the paganism of the ancient world. It was not normative in the Greek and Roman empires to consider the humanity of all of its citizens. Men were believed to possess inherently more dignity than women, slaves, or children. I mean, three weeks ago I shared about the practice of exposure where an unwanted child was left at the outskirts of the city to die by wild beasts or the elements, and that practice flowed right out of the immorality that saw children as less than human. This is the society that Jesus entered into. This is the society that Jesus upended. We see Jesus in the Gospels being an advocate for women and children. The disciples say, children, leave Jesus alone. What does Jesus say? He lifts them up. No, let them come to me. They have value. In fact, they see the kingdom in ways that you can't see them right now because of their youthfulness. Right? The writings of Paul were counter-cultural. I mean, when he writes, he wrote the, they're called household, co- household codes very often. Ephesians has them, Colossians has them. No one would have batted an eye when he's giving instructions, telling women, slaves, and children how to behave. That, that would have been assumed. But each of those are preceded by instructions that gave to, to, uh, gave instructions to men, to masters, to parents, fathers specifically. That was unheard of in the ancient world, to tell them to do anything different, because they were always in the right. This ethic of universal human rights flows out of the gospel. Now, some have tried. I don't think you can just build a compelling vision of human rights solely on a secular or humanist ethic. Right? If we're just a random assortment of bones and tissue and muscle, if we're just here by sheer dumb luck, then what grounds do we have any purpose of morality? If it's evolution that got us here, then it's just Darwin's survival of the fittest. It just reinforces that the strong survive at the cost of the weak. It's how you get the practice of exposure. That child is a drain on my resources, doesn't bring anything to the table, so I'm totally justified in ridding myself of him or her. Peter Singer, um, he's an atheist philosopher, and he, he grounds the value of humans by what they bring to their table, like their capacities for self-awareness, self-sufficiency, their ability to suffer. So for example, example, Singer would place infants at a lower value than animals because of their helplessness. Now, I don't know that it's a real popular position, but it exists out there. And I hope you could see what a small jump it is from what Singer is advocating for and something like the practice of exposure. Justifies us. The Christian faith grounds human value and therefore intrinsic right as the result that we are made in the image of God. 
The fact that God's fingerprints are all over us speak to our innate worth. Right? Without the religious foundation, there's no such thing as a soul. There's no such thing as transcendent experience. Right? Nothing that it, we can experience outside of the physical boundaries of our life. And I think that robs life of meaning. It takes away our ability to have a comp- compelling vision of morality. I mean, I want to give you one more example of ways in which folks have tried to do this. I don't think he's an atheist specifically, but this guy, Martin Nowak, he directs the Harvard Program for Evolutionary Dynamics. And he puts forth his own secular vision for morality. He argues for something called evolutionary altruism. Altruism is like, you know, being generous, kind to others. You know, the the standard vision of evolution points to individuality, um, selfishness, Nowak argues that there might be evolutionary benefit to not be selfish. And he gives four examples. I'll go through these real quick. You don't have to remember them. Direct reciprocity, right? That would be like, you've probably heard, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, right? So I'm going to be generous with you because you're then going to be generous back to me. There's also indirect reciprocity. I'll scratch your back and I'm not going to get a direct response, but someone else will scratch my back. He said there was an advantage to spatial selection. If more people in our tribe cooperate, we're going to outcompete the other tribes nearby. Or what he calls kin selection, I'll sacrifice myself for members of my clan. But the truth is it's still acting in self-interest, or at least the interest of your tribe by which you benefit. Taken to its logical conclusion, what does it result in? Tribalism or worse, fascism? I mean, basically, this is a more polished version of the philosophy of Joey Tribbiani in the sitcom Friends. He argues in one episode that there is no unselfish good deed. Right? His friend Phoebe, she, she was a surrogate. She carried um, children for her brother and sister-in-law. They weren't able to have kids themselves. And it was a really kind thing, but Joey says it made you feel good. And because it made you feel good, it was selfish. It's ultimately what this, this comes down to in atheistic, evolutionary, even altruism. So as you can see, it's really difficult to nail down morality, especially in the absence of some higher power or greater good that we can anchor it to. So I know there was a lot I was sharing with Sarah and Sarah beforehand. It's like kind of felt more like a lecture than an exposition, but we got through that part. I want to use the rest of our time because I hope that we can see that not only religion can encourage morality, but I want to provide a vision for why I think the Christian, Christian tradition gives us a glimpse into what morality or goodness ought to look like, not to mention that Christianity can actually bring change to our lives. The Christian faith teaches that each of us has a sense, we have some sense of right and wrong that seems to be innate, We might often call this our conscience. The precise nature of those feelings might not always agree between two individuals, but there's a general sense that we ought to be kind towards others. Like, we we would admit it's wrong to steal from someone else. Now, just having that feeling of wrong, that it's wrong, may not prevent us from stealing, And there's all kinds of moral conundrums, right? Like, is it wrong to steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? You've probably heard those before. But let's just assume, right, no starving families. We would all say, like, it's wrong to take bread just because we want it, 
Now, some might argue that that's been culturally conditioned in us, but I think that, that those consciences, that little voice in our head that helps us navigate right and wrong, it's a divine trait. Paul says, he, he says this in Romans 2, verses 13 to 15. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. So, right, just, just hearing, just knowing the right thing isn't what justifies you, doing the right thing. But he continues, For when Gentiles, non Jewish people, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. So even though they don't have the law, and they may not know everything in the law, right? we talked two week, last week about general versus special revelation, but they're still abiding by it. They still have that sense of right and wrong. He says in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on our hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. God, as being part in the image of God, he's given us a sense of right and wrong. Try to take the divine away, and I just don't think there's a foundation for it. I believe morality is determined by God, and these morals, I mean, you know, I sometimes go into dark places on the web trying to, you know, research the stuff, uh, and people are like, oh, these are just divine whims. Like, why should I live towards that? Like, you know, let's be honest. Morality is not just God throwing stuff on a wall to see what sticks. You know, it's not God just saying, like, uh, depending on how I'm feeling on a particular day, this is how I want you to live. Right, the, I think we could acknowledge that being part of a moral law is meant to govern us. It's meant to show us how life ought to be lived, showing us what is good for us and good for those around us. You know, Rob Bell has a, a famous video, I think it's called Flame, and you know, he talks about, well, actually, I'm not going to go down that route. We'll put it this way, right? Fire is good. Having a fire in your fireplace is good. Heats the house, keeps you warm, cozy. You don't want to have a fire in your living room. Having a boundary around that fire provides advantage and also protects you. I think the moral law is meant to kind of, it's boundaries that are meant to protect us. All right. So, you know, something I've been considering a lot lately um, is this concept of, of the way, quote unquote, Right, John Mark Homer uh, recently wrote a book about it, uh, Followers of the Way of Jesus. I I'm eager to dig into it, um, this book that he wrote. The earliest followers of Jesus, before they were even called Christians, they were identified as followers of the way. Following Jesus brings transformation in our lives. Right? It's something that we do, and I also argue it's something that we are, that is true about us. Following Jesus is a spiritual discipline. It takes effort on our part. Something we do. But I believe that if that work is genuine, it will lead to change. It will lead to transformation in us for the better. It will cause us to look more and more like Jesus. Now, if we acknowledge if we believe that Jesus was the very form of God in human form, which we do believe that, therefore he is the ultimate expression of morality. Now being a Christian, this is I think where sometimes the church gets, wrong, gets it wrong and this is where these types of questions come from. Being a Christian does not mean that we get to claim any innate moral superiority. To try to do so is to fall into legalism, 
I think it's to be guilty of the same sin of the Pharisees in Jesus' day where, you know, our moral standards puff us up and we can, you know, yes, I live this way and I can look down on others who don't measure up. That is not the gospel. Quite the contrary. The Christian acknowledges our failures, recognizing where, once again, we've dropped the ball. And our only option is to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, the only true, the only truly good man who ever lived. Our morality, it it changes, it grows, not because we are so much better than anyone else, but because we're willing to acknowledge our failures and trust that God not only forgives them, but is going to pour in us a little bit more of himself. That rhythm, right? Confession, repentance. Confession, repentance. It changes us, right? When we invite the Holy Spirit to fight our battles, it yields inward transformation, and and that ought to have outward expressions. For example, Paul in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, he lists characteristics that the Spirit brings within us. They're popularly called the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says against such things there is no law. Now, I think if you asked people, do a random survey of people, whether they're religious or non-religious, about those characteristics, I'm going to read nine words to you. Tell me, are these, do these define morality? I'd wager a guess that they are universally recognized as a positive vision of morality. Yes, patience is good. Yes, love is good. Joy is good. Self-control is good. This comes from, these things come from learning to follow God more closely. The problem at hand is we can't measure this change in our lives. Right? You can't do a double-blind psychological study to see the presence of morality in the followers of Jesus Christ. As I already said, plenty of us as followers of Jesus, we mess up. We make mistakes. We act in immoral manners. But that in and of itself is not proof that religion hinders morality. The truth is there's no way to determine how much worse we would be apart from Jesus. Years ago, I worked in ministry with a woman named Kelly, and she shared with me a statement of one of our elders made towards her at a Christmas party. He said something like this, somewhat of a paraphrase. He says, it's a good thing that you're a Christian, I don't want to know what you would have been like without Jesus. Her response was like, like, thank you, I think, you know? Like, it was a pretty dense statement. This guy was, was kind of known for putting his foot in his mouth on occasion. But the point of his statement is saying, like, we just don't know how bad we would be without Jesus. Now, I'll just say, some of you know how bad you'll be without Jesus because you've been bad, and then you found Jesus, and he changed your life. Let me try to summarize kind of my point in this. So we have this initial question, doesn't religion hinder morality? And it's it's plagued with issues. It's it's like a not a good faith argument. We can point to places where religion has caused people to act in, in immoral ways. The data would suggest that broadly speaking, religion is good for morality. And these attempts to base a universal morality like human rights and dignity is grounded in the language of faith. 
But what I tried to share in these last few minutes is to briefly demonstrate why the way of Jesus yields positive transformation, which leads to higher levels of morality in his followers. If we aspire to be like Jesus, we're going to be more moral. None of us are perfect. We're a work in progress by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But through that lens of faith, we see that faith in Jesus does not hinder morality, but cultivates it. Right? Leaves us as better people than we would have been apart from our relationship to him. And let me be, be clear. We are not saved because of those good works that follow. We are only saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ launches us into living our lives differently. It's an outward expression of that inward reality of what Christ has done through his forgiveness. We're not going to be perfect, but I've got a few questions for us to consider this week that maybe can help us think about what morality would look like in our lives. So the first is this. Would you consider Christianity a moral religion? Why or why not? Second is this. When you recognize a place that you have erred, you've messed up, you've sinned, do you repent before God? Or do you just ignore it and move on with your life? This, I think, is a really important question for the Christian because too often, right, sin yields, leads, oh man, I'm so late, I'm sorry, Sin yields shame, it yields guilt, and the last thing we want is to feel those feelings, and so to try to do away with it, we compartmentalize it, put it aside, be like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal myself to be better and be different, and, th- and that's fine. I mean, I, I hear that, but I think when you, don't, when you don't bring it to God who knows it already and invite his Holy Spirit to bring change, we're, we're kind of like, cutting off our nose to spite our faces, I don't know. Some, think of some catchy anecdote there. I think confession, so my, my invitation, it's not on there, is spend some time in prayer this week in confession and repentance of your sins. Be honest, because God already knows what you've done. You're not going to say anything that shocks him. Confession and repentance. Lastly is this, as you look at that uh, Galatians 5, and 23, fruit of the Spirit, if you look at those nine things, which of them would you say, like, all right, I've seen ways in which God has been moving, right? Which one is most present in your life? But also, which is the one that has, provides the most opportunity to develop? They're all there. Some of the fruits are going to be bigger than the others. So which is the, small, which is the big fruit, you know, that you're like, ah, oh, I want to eat that, and which is the one that's, like, pretty small and unappealing? So anyway, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll close out. Lord, thank you for your word and the ways in which you have created us and cultivated us to be uh, a people that you have given us a sense of right or wrong. Apart from you, uh, there would be no sense of right and wrong. It would just be every person for themselves. And so, God, we are, I am grateful that you have given us your law. You have given us that sense of right and wrong, both externally and internally. You have given us the example of Jesus, but you haven't left us just to our own devices because as we mess up, as we act in immoral ways, you have given us a pathway back to you to reconcile to you through Christ and to be healed of those places of struggle and strife. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that process of sanctification, that we would be a little bit more, more and more like Jesus Christ uh, in your in his name and in your power, we pray. Amen.